Okay, we are back and it is a beautiful Sunday afternoon. I am here with a friend of mine, Imogen, who is going to talk to me about few important things and I am excited to kickstart this conversation. Imogen, are you there? Hello, I'm here. Eid Mubarak to you and your listeners. Thank you. Oh my God. Do you know what? I'm all dressed up and I've got nowhere to go. <laughs> uh, sometimes that's quite fun though, I think. It's just, I've had a little play around with uh, with date nights and stuff in lockdown and it's like, oh, actually quite nice to get dressed up again. Yeah. I, did, like, I took a little walk though and I came back and I took like about a thousand pictures. You know, the iffy selfies had to happen. And then I came back and then that was it. That was my Eid. I was like, woo. <laughs> Sounds like but, a good day. Um, do you know what? I'm not complaining. It's it's good. It's good. It was all right. It was decent. But how are you? I'm not too bad. I am as good as a person in uh, national lockdown during a global pandemic finishing a PhD can be, I think. <laughs> wow. That is heavy. That is, that is, yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those sentences that you just think, oh, before that you have your studies that was quite intense and then everything else. And then now we're in a national lockdown, like in a pandemic and like everything is just mad. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, on the one hand, lockdown has given me a kind of no excuse uh, ruling to just sit and write. But on the other hand, I just have to make sure I'm not, trying to do it all the time you've got to find the balance basically as you would in a normal world whatever that looks like yeah definitely but are you coping are you okay I think the same with everyone else I have my up days I have my down days some days I'm really productive I write loads or edit loads I do some exercise reading whatever it is and then some days I just just want to cry for no apparent reason I saw something on social media, something called, someone called it the Corona Coaster, the kind of oh, days wow. that are great and days that are terrible. And so I think everyone's going through it. But I have to say, I am counting my blessings. I'm counting my health. I don't know anyone that's been directly affected with the virus. Mm. Um, so mm. I could be, you know, there's, there's lots to be grateful for at the moment. I think that's the important thing to remember. Oh, that's really, that's very true because it does seem like all gloom, like with everything. But when we actually like take a step back and look at um, the blessings that we have, so it's not all too bad. Yeah. So that's, that's very, very true. And so like, have you been doing anything to cope with like the lockdown? I think the most important thing is just, and it fits in nicely with the theme for Mental Health Awareness Week this week, uh, about kindness. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, the most important thing that I've been doing is being kind to myself primarily. So as I say, it's very tempting to think I have to sit at my desk all day and write and, you know, this needs doing. There's a certain time pressure, there's a deadline, so I'm very aware of that. And so I'm worried about getting it all done. But on the same at the same time, I just have to make sure that I take breaks, that um, I'm going for a walk, that I can do things I know that I enjoy and have that little bit of respite from it. And again, if, you know, if for whatever reason I'm feeling particularly emotional or unmotivated, not to be harsh on myself, not to say, you know, come on, you've got to do this. It's like sometimes you just say, OK, today or even just this hour isn't an hour to be doing. It's just to 
kind of be if you like and then go from there and uh it's working so far i think (laughs) i think the important Mm -hmm. thing to think is that i know this word has been used so much recently but this Mm. really is an unprecedented situation and it's new to everybody it's new to everybody and it's no one knows exactly how to deal with this there's no right Mm. or wrong response and so i think it's Mm. using what works best for you yeah, that's very, very true. And I think the key word that you said, like being kind to yourself and also you don't have to necessarily be doing the most. Sometimes it's okay to just be. I really, really like that. That's a very important um, reminder, not just for you, but for me and everyone who's listening as well. Because especially when you look at our social medias or you speak to family members or you even see the news or whatever, you see people like, you saw like, well, how old was he? The colonel who walked around his garden. He was like 100 years old. That's right. Or was he, 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 he did what? it. He made sure he did it before he turned 100. Um, so what? he is now 100, but yeah. Incredible legend. So when you see things like that, And you look at yourself and you're like, wait a minute, I'm in my 20s. What's my problem? So, you know, everyone has something that kind of you look at someone else doing something as great as that or as whatever. And you kind of question yourself. So I think instead of that, just we're all at a different pace of whatever we're going through. So be kind to yourself. That's really, really important. Yeah, and I think also not treating this period like a challenge. I think ultimately, Mm -hmm. if we go to the very base of this, this is about survival. And that sounds dramatic, but we've seen the effect that this virus is having all over the world. And so that's why we're being told to stay indoors as much as possible. And it shouldn't be seen as this is, you know, however long this is going to go on for. It's already been a couple of months these are the times to do all those things that you really wanted to do or should have done ages ago, whether that's, you know, redecorating your house or learning a language or an instrument. And, and I think if people want to use this time for that, then obviously that's fantastic. But if you want to just sit at home watching Netflix in your pajamas all day, because that feels like what you want to do for the day, then fine. There's absolutely no pressure or there shouldn't be a pressure for you to do what you assume is the thing to do as I say this is such an individual experience for everyone then it's just Mm -hmm. about finding what works for you and uh, if you want to be productive great if you don't want to be productive great (laughs) wow that's very true and it all comes back down to the importance of keeping your mind healthy and the importance of mental health because everyone has their different pace of what gives them healthy mind Definitely. So I think one thing that's come up a lot, particularly on social media, is the importance of physical health. And so, again, mm-hmm. lots of people are using this time to get fit or, in do, or sort of get into better shape. And I mean, for my part, I am one of the people that has decided, you know, during this period, not, not just during this period, to be fair, but as I'm at home and I can't go to the gym, then I am doing workouts I've uh, hired an online personal trainer so I've got someone to kind of monitor my progress and for me that is the best way to get away from my studying just for an hour or two a day so I'm not just sat at my laptop constantly and not moving around it's so important to to still move around I think so you know there's lots of people on Instagram for example who are suddenly 
kind of like fitness influencers without any particular <laughs> training and mm. uh and, and and again and i know people who are saying oh i've put on so much weight and i haven't really done much exercise i feel awful and again there's this expectation from some people that that's what you should be doing now but it shouldn't be mm. the case of using it like that and this feels like it's never ending i totally appreciate that and it's you know we don't know when this lockdown will end but it will end and then there will be an opportunity to go out and to have more motivation in a normal life whatever that looks like for each person mm. to you know go to the gym or for a walk or run or whatever and again I think it's just about not putting too much pressure on ourselves yeah wow and like I don't want us to spend too much on like COVID because it's just so like it's a very kind of downer conversation if that makes sense and like what I wanted to do was like you know talk about some of the things that make you amazing and kind of focus on positive things but sometimes life is not all positive there are you know sad bits as well and there's good bits it's just like different things so on the topic of mental health do you have any personal connection to it well Definitely. And it extends far beyond uh, the current situation. I mean, I would say that you're right. Unfortunately, with life, there are many ups and there are many downs. We have to go through mm -hmm. losses and sadness. Uh, in some ways, I think that makes us appreciate what we do have. As I say, I'm very lucky at the moment that, you know, I don't have anyone uh, working directly um, in hospitals. I, I have a relative in the NHS, but they are, you know, in a surgery, so they're not constantly in contact with um, COVID patients so there's far less risk mm. of catching the virus I haven't mm. lost anyone to it so but I have as you say I have had other um, other connections to mental health issues particularly so when I was younger uh, so my my mother was an alcoholic unfortunately and started yeah. drinking probably when I was a few months old and she died just before I turned nine. So she's been she's been gone now nearly 20 years, um, which sometimes feels like a very long time and sometimes feels you know like it happened last week. And so there's a lot of issues. I won't sit here and, and kind of describe them now, but there's obviously yeah. lots of issues, lots of memories that that brought and and have carried on. So I have suffered with depression and anxiety. The depression I was first diagnosed with when I was 17, I went to a clinical psychologist, had an assessment. Um, the anxiety has been on and off, particularly, I would say, during my PhD, uh, just because oh. of the enormous amount of pressure and the fact that it is a big project that you are essentially doing on your own. You know, uh, it's quite isolating, can be quite isolating. And, yeah. and there's a, I think you've, you've probably heard this phrase, the kind of imposter syndrome that comes with it. So this, oh my goodness. the real, yeah, yeah the real self-doubt, the am I good enough? Is this good enough? Should I be doing this? You know, um, so so that's kind of the, the depression, the anxiety have been there throughout a lot of my life. And I've lo looked at different ways of trying to cope with it. I've been on medication. Thankfully, I'm not on it now. I have had various types of counselling and therapy. I do have a therapist. I speak to her. Uh, once a fortnight at the moment just on the phone or on a video call um so yeah mental health is something that's is very much been uh prevalent in my life so far so have you had because um you're very strong by the way because you know sometimes when you meet certain people and you have this you see on the outside these people look they look like they put together if that makes sense and i don't even know what that means but there's this image of 
I don't even know if there is an image of somebody who's supposed to have mental health because we don't know. Mental health doesn't really have a particular image of what it looks like. Anybody could be somebody who's going through something and not everybody's pain is the same. Does that make sense? So, like, have you ever had, like, any moments where you felt like you couldn't talk to anybody or have you always been lucky enough to know when to reach out? Well, I think you uh, you make a very important point about um, kind of the, the facade that people can put on. So when I was at university and I struggled with depression, I didn't have the support in place that I had had before I moved away um, to university. So, you know, I was finding it difficult and people would say to me, but you seem fine. You, you're so social and you crack jokes and and I think it's, yeah, there can be a facade. You want to appear a certain way to the outside world, even if inside you're really struggling and you're finding things difficult. And I think saying about, you know, you don't know what other people are experiencing is so important because, you know, when we think, for example, about social media and it's very faceless, it can be quite anonymous. People feel like they can say whatever they want because they're just typing it into a screen or their smartphone. And there isn't as much consideration for the person on the other end who's receiving that. You know, we don't know what people are going through. And I think there needs to be a lot more empathy in the world. But, um, yeah, it's just it's just a recognition that you never know quite what's going on behind closed doors or in someone's head. Uh, so just, again, coming back to the idea of kindness, just, just being kind to other people. In terms of my personal experience for talking and, and kind of getting stuff out, I'm very much a person that needs to talk things through. I have always had that. I think I get it from my father. Um, very open and honest about things. And, and I, for me, talking through things is a way of lightening the load. But on the other hand, you know, sometimes if you're feeling particularly depressed, then you worry that you're going to bother other people, that people don't want to listen, that you're being too much of a burden. And so sometimes if I am having a particularly bad day, I might keep it more to myself. At the moment, it's easier somewhat because my uh, my boyfriend is actually in lockdown with me. So I do have someone to talk to. I think if I was on my own in this situation, I would be finding it much more difficult. But we have, you know, a good connection and there's also space between us. He's he's a key worker. He works in a supermarket so he can go. We can have time apart and then come back together. And if there's any issues, we can talk them through, for which I'm I'm very grateful. But I think, yeah, it's not black and white in terms of getting stuff off your chest or finding someone to talk to and you know I think there's still so much stigma around seeking help for mental health issues so if you know if someone is advised to go on medication let's say antidepressants or speak to a professional a counsellor or a therapist then I think for lots of people they worry about how that looks and that they're not strong enough and for me the best way to look at mental health is to think about it like physical health. If you fell down the stairs and broke your leg, you wouldn't just hope it went away or hope it got better by itself. You would go to the hospital, you would go to your doctor and you would have it put in a cast and it would heal that way. You know, you would get the support for it. Mental health shouldn't be treated any differently and there shouldn't be the stigma and discrimination around getting support that there is. That's, oh my God, that's powerful. And that's very, very true. 
because it, you know even before you even talk about like with your language so even if you had a cough or even if you had like anything physical health related small you would think right i need remedy i need medication or i need something like that's the thing that we're programmed since the beginning of you know whatever but when it comes to the mind it's it's like another language in still a lot of cultures including mine it's a thing that we haven't even remotely fully understood properly because when you think about somebody who says i'm feeling this type of way or i'm going through this even if the person speaks out people would automatically say well you're being weak you need to be a bit more stronger or you need to find god you know you need to like this you need to that and it's never about are you okay let's check in with you what do you need making sure that the individual is actually and you know they're fine so like i think you know there are some people who are lucky that they can speak to someone and some people are not quite so lucky and some people who don't even understand that what they're going through can be classed as mental health so what would you say to those people how would a person know the feelings that they're having are not just them feeling some type of way but these are feelings that you need to go get help um, for so i mean definitely just to come back to the the point about uh, sort of cultural differences and also i think for other generations um generations before us the mental health issue was never discussed openly and you know for example in britain there's this stereotype of the stiff upper lip that whatever you're going through you keep it to yourself and you deal with it privately and we have come some way since that um but we still have a long way to go i think what you say about um a religious perspective you know i'm not religious but if someone were to say to me you know oh but you should seek help in god you should pray and and you know god will make things better i think obviously there is there is an element of that but perhaps also you know god or, or whatever ha- higher power you might believe in um has given the skills to people to find these medicines to create them to set up counseling and have people available to talk to so perhaps to look at it that way that actually there's a facilitation from god that these people have these skills and so you should use them to help better yourself um yes. you know and and to kind of pay them back for their for their um research and, and the work that they do but as I say, wow. I'm, I'm not an expert in <laughs> theology. That's just my interpretation. Yeah. But, I but think- that's actually true. Sorry. That's actually true. There are people out there who do spiritual healing and they do like spiritual counseling and spiritual, you know, guidance and stuff. And it does link with mental health. So that's a really good point that you made. Thank you. If there is somebody listening who's maybe in their own, um, like uh, approach to like not wanting to go into medical route then you can go into spiritual um, way but make sure you find the right people to actually help you um deal with deal with whatever feelings that you're trying to deal with on your own and you shouldn't be going through anything on your own definitely but i mean even not so much talking about spiritual healing obviously for some people that works but also in terms of medical healing uh, mm. what what i mean is that um you know when people say you, you should pray to god and and he or she will help then um then also i think there's there should be recognition that people who are 
in the medical um, world who have created antidepressants, who have set up, you know, medical counselling or kind of NHS therapy, let's say, um, to to maybe approach them as a sign that God has given them the skills needed to to create these um, medications or, or therapies. But going back to your question about how people would know kind of if they need help, yeah. mental health is so complicated the mind is such a complicated mechanism that people are affected in lots of different ways by different things for me a lot of the things that I struggle with obviously with depression there's a, a low mood very low energy so kind of if I'm having a really bad day all I want to do is sleep part of that is a lack of energy and part of that is just to get away from what I'm feeling anxiety kind of comes in intrusive thoughts so things that as I say that kind of nagging that the self-doubt that is is this good enough should I be doing this am I wasting my time but it can come in all sorts of ways and can be more extreme people have panic attacks where they feel like they can't breathe um, they have a, a shortness of breath they might feel hot and sweaty and clammy that kind of thing you know people might have symptoms of for example schizophrenia hearing voices seeing things that aren't there believing certain ideas and things that aren't real so I mean there's such a variety of different conditions that a person can have and I think anything that worries you or makes you feel low or just makes you feel off I think you just sort of know when something's not right then that's the time when you should at least consider going to someone for that support going to your GP or even contacting a charity like Mind for example who specialize in mental health awareness and uh, recovery amazing and um we'll try we'll also tag the mental health foundation in the episode when it goes up as well because they had a lot of amazing amazing um support information throughout the awareness week so they're another like um people to reach out to as well but yeah i think all of those things that you talk about are kind of things that people can easily analyze and ask themselves if they find themselves in that situation that's very true yeah I think so um and as I say there I appreciate that there's so many different um culturals sorry culture cultural understandings of um of mental health and perhaps some misconceptions and it's not always easy for people but if you can access the support then then by all means I would you know from a personal point of view personal experience I would definitely encourage that and even if it is just as you said, so the Mental Health Foundation is a good example. Um, other organisations and charities that you can find, you know, their websites, their social media and the things that they're putting out, not just, of course, for Mental Health Awareness Week, but also throughout the year, you know, and there is plenty of help available. And sometimes it's just finding the right fit. So as I say, I've been on medication before. I don't take it now, but I haven't. Mm. My problems haven't gone away. It's just finding what works for you. And it can take some time, but at the end of the day the the rewards the recovery is uh or at least feeling better is is all worth it i think one of the reasons why people kind of fear medication is like when you try to go into like dr google like and you look at all like for example you type in antidepressants and you see the you know side effects and some of the people on youtube etc talking about it it's it's supposed to be something that's supposed to be helping you but the negatives sound very very dark so how was it for you in your experience did you have any like really bad side effects 
I think Google is is quite a challenge in terms of getting the record straight when it comes to all sorts of medical conditions and tablets and things. And I think often you see or read about the worst things that they can do. People put their most extreme experiences on there. You do obviously have websites like the NHS who give you a bit more of an overview. Um, but, you know, always the best thing to do with any condition that you might have, physical or mental, is, is to see a professional, see a GP. Um, for me... The biggest problem I've had with medication has just been fatigue and tiredness. So it's hard to say sometimes whether it's just my general mental health that isn't so great or it's the meds. Um, but, you know, I've often found that I get very fatigued, very tired, um, sleep for sort of 12 hours and then feel like I need a nap later on. So that's the one thing that I'm definitely not missing from them. And uh, because of the way that chemicals and you know things in the medication work then you can for the first kind of four to six weeks sometimes feel worse uh, which puts a lot of people off you know if they have warnings on antidepressants um, that you know sometimes they might actually make you feel more depressed and in some cases suicidal um, so it's important that someone at least knows that you're on them that can monitor you and check in with you I didn't have that very very thankfully but it is, you know, it can be a side effect. But as I said, always the best thing to do, talk to your GP. If you, if they decide that perhaps you would benefit from medication, you can give it a go. And if it's not working for whatever reason, you can try something else because medication affects people differently. And, you know, it, it might take a little while again to find that right fit. But if it helps, then, you know, all the better for it. Yeah, very true. Do you think like the, uh, one of the stigmas is that if somebody has mental health, then um, or any uh, mental health condition, it could be any forms, then that person like their success, achievements, all of that gets impacted. Like, what did you do when you were at school and college and university and stuff? And how was your academic like you know journey? It, it definitely can have an impact. And of course, if it's left untreated, as it were, then the impact can be even greater. Yeah. I think for me, I would say I am what you might call kind of a functioning depressive, let's say, let's put it that way. Someone who is yeah. high functioning and can get on with things, but is still affected by these issues. Um, yeah. I have had times, though, where I have had to just stop and take a break. So I have been doing my PhD for four and a half years but six months of that was a break I actually had to say to the university I'm not doing very well I've got very bad depression anxiety you know trying to sit and write things and not feel terrible all the time is just impossible so I had six months away to just take a break to not look at it for a while to focus on getting better to you know talking to people about it um and it depends at kind of what stage you're at, the help that is available as well. Um, you know, for teenagers, it's not so much recommended perhaps to to start off with medication. It might be counselling, um, might have a school counsellor, for example, first. So okay. it, it very much depends on the situation, as I say, the stage that you're at. I mean, it has affected me academically in some ways, but then in other ways, I've been very lucky in terms of a support network of friends. I mean, universities, you know, at least the ones I've been to have some way to go, I think, to improve their uh, mental health support. I think that's quite a common thing around British universities, not yeah. helped by the fact that there's been so much uh, funding that's been cut over the last few years and probably will continue to be cut at this rate, um, politics aside. Um, so I think, 
yeah, it's just been um, a case of having a, a good network of friends, of colleagues who have been understanding about these things. Not all of them, um, but, you know, most of them. And talking to family and, as I say, getting kind of medical professional help as well. Amazing. But are you kind of like when, what did you study before you did your PhD? So I have an undergraduate in psychology and then oh. I'm... I did that at the University of Birmingham and then I moved to Royal Holloway, um, which is part of the University of London, which is where I'm registered now. So I did a Master of Arts in Holocaust Studies. Yes, there is such a thing. And uh, <laughs> I'm carrying on my PhD in, at Royal Holloway in the History Department. Okay. And what made you go into Holocaust Studies? That's quite a whoa. Yeah, so definitely shifting the conversation on to, uh, to another story here. And I'm sure you, you have some similar experiences. Um, so I, my first experience that I can remember of Holocaust education and kind of direct contact with Holocaust education was when I was in year nine and we had a Holocaust survivor come in and speak to us, a really lovely man called Rudy Oppenheimer, who survived Bergen-Belsen, um, amongst other places. And I'd, al I'd always had an interest in history and particular parts of history, periods of history. So World War II was a big one for me. Um, my maternal grandfather had been in uh, Europe, in sort of France, Holland and Germany during the war. He was at D-Day, I found out later on after he died, uh, which is, I mean, inconceivable, really, especially when he was 24, kind of on the beaches of Normandy. Um, so there was always that kind of, you know, a, a personal history, a personal connection to it, which I found very interesting. And then I'd learned a bit about the Holocaust, but very, very basic things. So this survivor really brought home the kind of individual human impact of it. Uh, we studied some of the Holocaust again in year nine, which is quite common in um, state schools, sort of on the curriculum. It's kind of year nine and above. And it was very no disrespect to my teachers but it's quite a difficult subject to teach and yeah. there was very much a reliance on the textbooks which were very objective and kind of you know here are some photographs of dead bodies after liberation and here's this figure of six million and there wasn't that again that wasn't that individual human element to it and then I did GCSE history and we covered a module on the rise of Nazism so we took a trip to Berlin and Krakow in Poland uh, and we started off in Berlin, we saw the sites kind of associated with, with Nazi Germany, and then we took an overnight coach from Berlin to Krakow, and I know the teachers meant well, and I know it was all kind of logistical and practical and whatever, but we were a bunch of 14 or 15-year-olds on this coach in the middle of continental Europe, like, way, let's just stay up till 4am because it'll be fun. And... <laughs> The day that we arrived in Krakow, we were going to the Auschwitz Museum. And so we hadn't had much sleep and it was quite an early start when we did get there. And I remember getting off the coach and one of my teachers who had already been started talking to us about it and she started crying. And I thought, right, here we go. This is going to be difficult. And it was difficult. And I mean, obviously, it's a difficult place to visit anyway. But I think because of that, first of all, the the tiredness that we all experienced or most of us experienced. And also, I think, to be honest, at the age of 15, I wasn't emotionally mature enough. I wasn't emotionally prepared for, for a confrontation with that kind of place. So yeah. I remember quite quickly the guide was taking us through and showing us these different things. And we were all just like just at 
a loss kind of just couldn't comprehend it crying really really emotional not really taking it all in and I remember and as I'm sure you do the first moment where I walked into the room that's full of women's hair and oh, it was such God. such a visceral reaction it was like being punched in the gut and I just felt sick and you know I can still I can still bring that to mind now you know 13 years later so I had that experience and I was like right that's I'd never go there again I can't you know, it was just horrible, interesting history, but I couldn't do that again. And then when I was in sixth form, the Holocaust Educational Trust uh, had been in, in touch with the school about their lessons from Auschwitz project, which to explain briefly to listeners uh, is that two students from every participating uh, sixth form or college go to a seminar, they hear from a Holocaust survivor, then they talk a bit about the visit, about a week later, you do a one-day visit, and it is literally you get up at three a.m., get on, get to the airport, get a plane out to Krakow, then you are driven in a coach to the town of Oświęcim, which is the Polish name for Auschwitz. Auschwitz is a German name, and you see some of the towns, then go to Auschwitz One and Auschwitz Birkenau, which are sort of slightly separate camps within the same network. At the end of the day, there's a ceremony. And then you literally get back on the coach, on the plane, you get home half past 10, 11 o'clock. So it's knackering <laughs> and it's not a very conventional way of, of doing it. And then again, about yeah. a week later, there's another seminar and you um, debrief, you have a talk about the day and how you've processed it. And then this all leads up to a project where you will take what you've learned into your local, your school or your community and so on. So they approached our school about, about this and... I, I was still interested and I thought, well, maybe this time it'll be different. So I put my name forward and somehow it got kind of picked out of a hat randomly, as far as I know, chosen. So my friend and I did this project and it was just the way that the trust made it. So, again, you know, emphasizing that individuality, the human element of it, the the loss, the absence of this very large Jewish community um, and all the you know thousands of others that were persecuted under the Nazis. and from then I just thought you know this is something this is so fascinating and it's such an important history that when there are you know this is talked about a lot increasingly because of the age of the survivors but when there are no longer people who were eyewitnesses to this history there needs to be people who will talk about it who will educate younger people um you know just just as a historical event but also perhaps to look at our own mor morality and responsibilities and I just knew from them that I wanted to be one of those people. So when I did my psychology degree, uh, again, relating to mental health, I thought I was thinking about going into psychology and maybe therapy to help other people. And I got to my third year and it was <laughs> my degree was very sciencey. And I am not a scientific person in any stretch. I'm <laughs> you know, good at writing and, and languages and history, but not, you know, maths and statistics. So I got to the stage where I thought I'm not this isn't a career for me what you know it was interesting but other people would benefit from from the limited places there are on you know other courses and I remember on a whim I just looked at a sort of postgraduate um, website for offering different courses I typed in the word holocaust and this MA in holocaust studies at Royal Holloway came up um, which at that point was led by the amazing Professor David Cesarani who sadly is no longer with us um, and it's, you know, it's a very reputable course. It's the only one of its kind in the UK, although other universities now do, for example, Holocaust and genocide studies, Holocaust and Jewish studies, uh, or teach the Holocaust, obviously, in a, a wider framework. 
and uh, and yeah that's kind of where where that part of the the journey has gone and now I've come full circle as it were because obviously I met you Ifra during the the regional ambassador work um, yeah. for people who've, who've done lessons from Auschwitz um, <laughs> and then when we we kind of graduated from that in 2016 yeah yeah um long time ago and uh, and now i'm actually one of the educators on the lessons from auschwitz project so i am responsible for taking students on the same trip that that changed my life and i like to tell them when i meet them this is a this is something that can change your life not necessarily to the same extent that it's changed mine that i've literally put my whole career hopes and aspirations into working in holocaust studies um and teaching people about it but i think it has a profound effect on anyone who does it anyway yeah i i completely agree i remember um it took me i think to this day it took me a very long time to not get emotional in my speeches every time i talk about my experience and um i had to i don't know go dig deep into anything to just stay focused on because when you know when you said um the textbook had facts Figures, pictures, and that was just it. There was no emotion, there was no human element to it. So, whoever created the textbooks was clearly somebody who's never been, and they've just read it as well. But anybody who's been to those concentration camps, or even when we went to um, Germany as well, and where we thought, like, you know, it's just. It will always be with us, and it's something that changed who we are as people and made us better people, if that makes sense, because we saw the worst in humanity, like where unchecked prejudice and unchecked hatred can lead to if people are, you know, blind to it in a way and allow it to go that far. And that kind of, I think, in a way, it changed my career path as well like oh it had an impact on all of us in how it changed who we are but yeah how would you summarize that effect that it had on you other than just your career on a human element like how would you explain like the lessons as it were that you personally gained about humanity well that's a very big question um, <laughs> so I mean first of all I would just pick up on what you said about emotions and I think you know, as, as someone who's studying it, who's kind of, um, well, I, I don't consider myself a historian because what I'm working on isn't, it's more about the here and now, to be quite honest. It's um, my PhD looks at how the Auschwitz Museum has adapted to the digital museum to engage visitors and, and people on a global scale now. Um, so, you know, as a, as a, as a scholar in training, let's put it that way. Then I think sometimes people um, expect you to have a level of, well, of course, like a level of objectivity. But I think sometimes you have to allow those emotions because it, it you know, as a, a historical event and as a human tragedy, if that's the right word, an orchestrated tragedy, but uh, a tragedy nonetheless. Then I think, yeah, I don't, I don't think anyone can ever truly look at that objectively and, and just study it as as what it is you know as a historical fact or whatever it's got to be you know there, there always will always will be emotions involved in that um and i think oh to summarize <laughs> summarizing the lessons i mean it, it's you know it's difficult i think sometimes the, the the idea of lessons coming from the holocaust or from auschwitz is, is problematic in itself i mean you know the trust acknowledges yeah. that it's not 
a catch-all like Auschwitz is only one place within a much bigger history within a continental uh, genocide on a huge scale just that had never been seen before in history um, and it's only one place where it occurred you know but as uh, in terms of lessons I think it's just an awareness of what people can do if prejudice if discrimination is left unchecked so you know there's people have said and rightly so that Auschwitz did not start with gas chambers you know this the holocaust didn't start with murder it was a very carefully orchestrated kind of propaganda that came out in Nazi Germany the you know Germany and well the world had just been through the financial crisis of 1929 an economic depression set in People were unemployed, people were in poverty, and they were looking for a better way of life. They were looking for improvement in their conditions and in the way they were living. And of course, Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party marketed themselves to be able to give them that. And not only did they say, you know, we will increase employment and this and that, but they started pinning the problems that Germany had on the Jews, you know, this, they made them this other, this sort of group that was set apart from the rest of German society and, you know, brought, brought an element of race science into it so that somehow Jewish people were racially inferior and biologically inferior to this, you know, this perfect Aryan race. Um, and people, you know, I think were just receptive to the idea of a scapegoat perhaps on, in some level, other levels, I would say, or other aspects were more about complacency that, you know, the Nazis grew to power fairly steadily and perhaps people didn't perceive there to be an issue um, or that, you know, it didn't really affect them. So it wasn't too much of a problem anyway. And the anti-Jewish measures that were brought in were very gradual. That was deliberate, I think, you know, that that people would think, well, OK, that's not, you know, they can't you know, own a pet anymore or you can't go to the park oh well, that's annoying but you know things can't get much worse surely and of course then you know they do but just the way that they were the jewish people were targeted you know as, as systematically across europe not just in germany eventually absolutely i think it's really important to recognize that anti-semitism and other forms of prejudice were in europe before nazism you know it's not a would be uh, very naive to say it was germany who caused all these problems and you know there are so many accounts of people in other countries around europe helping to you know telling sort of um telling people where jews were hiding or stealing their property once they'd left or, or even killing them themselves you know but the, the point of it is, it's just how gradual it was and the labelling and the otherness that they gave to this one group of people. And I think that's, and that obviously is, is where it starts. And nowadays, when I look at the world, even before we had this global pandemic, there were, you know, the, the far right was gaining traction in lots of countries. So in America, in countries sort of in Central and Eastern Europe, particularly Poland and Hungary spring to mind, even in the UK to some degree, you know, there's been, I think it seems to be a rise in um, popularity in the right and the far right. And now that we are in this situation, when we do come out of this, there is going to be an incredible economic downturn. Um, lots of people are already unemployed. There'll probably be further cuts and there is going to be some sort of depression, I think, that comes out of this in terms of, you know, the economy. And it's just being aware of those things, those 
parties, those people who have particular ideas, extreme ideas, who are going to look at blaming a group of people for this and being mindful of, you know, of just calling them out for it. So, for example, um, you know, if you look at if you can bear to watch some of Trump's um, conference briefings that he gives, then, you know, he is he's actively blamed China for this. And of course, we know that virus started in China and OK, perhaps they could have managed this better. But then there is going to be a feeling of anti-Chinese sentiment, you know, and that's a great that's against the whole nation. That's not against the government or or the local authorities that could have helped prevent the spread. And also I saw just yesterday on Twitter uh, a survey that had been carried out amongst people in the UK and as many as one in five people think that either Jews or Muslims had something to do with this spread, you know, that, so, that somehow these groups of people are responsible for, for spreading this disease for whatever reason people think that's happened. So it's already there. There's already signs of, you know, we've gone through this or we're going through this terrible crisis as a world not just as a nation but as a world who can we blame for this and so we that's that's the sort of lesson that I've learned is how gradually things can start and just being very mindful of where it can lead and calling things out as early as possible amazing I, I think that's very very true and that's very very powerful and like the very like the examples that you used as well in our like society right now what's going on because you would think something as horrific as the holocaust and for human beings to kind of never again is the message that you know we as ambassadors we you know teach it during our events and educations or whatever we do but the rest of humanity whenever i look at social media on holocaust memorial day there are so many trending topics saying never again never again anywhere everywhere but is it really never again or is it just a one day event where people just talk because that's one thing that people are really good at just talking but not actions follow the talking I will never forget 15,000 far-right people marching the streets of London, protected under freedom of speech, waving Nazi, like, you know, hand signals, and one of them picking up a microphone, giving a very dramatic anti-Semitic speech, as well as a whole lot of Islamophobic slurs, and, but because the primary main thing of their campaign was Islamophobic, people just assumed, oh, just let them, you know, it's, it's not that they're just being, you know, they're just, we just easily laugh it off. But we shouldn't laugh it off. This is serious. So I'm glad that you mentioned like this far right increase, not just in our country, but across the world. And it's incredibly worrying that we're talking about a president. This is a president, not just like random people on the street being, you know, whatever. But this is a president saying an entire group of people. He doesn't just say China. He calls it the Chinese virus sometimes. And there are American Chinese people who are citizens of his country being impacted by his words, including medical staff who are risking their lives, saving people, and yet they are having extreme racism and discrimination thrown at them. 
news reporters who were there on the White House trying to talk to him, and yet you could see that they were being singled out simply because they look Chinese. Maybe that reporter wasn't even Chinese. I don't know. But yeah, <laughs> it's just, it's, it's really, we're, we're supposed to be moving forward as a society, but we're not. We're kind of like, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. But I have hope in the fact that there are more ambassadors. I think when we first became like student ambassadors with the um, trust, time since then, there has been more and more young people going to the experience, going through the experience that we did and coming back and doing even more incredible work. So not just with the Holocaust education, but in all forms of education and awareness, the children, the generation coming now, I think there is hope that they're a lot more open-minded than the generation that came before us, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And I think education is absolutely key to all of this um, because, you know, we it might sound a bit strange for someone who is actively in Holocaust studies and, and education, but I don't believe in never again because simply for the fact that it has happened since not, you know, a kind of direct um, replication of the Holocaust, if you like. But if we look through the last sort of 75 years since the liberation um, of the camps at the end of World War II, that of course there are genocides and human rights violations, you know, sort of the the the, the better known ones for, for want of a better phrase would be in Cambodia, in Rwanda, in Darfur, recently in Myanmar, or formerly Burma, you know, the Rohingya Muslims that have been persecuted at the moment in China, this kind of cultural genocide against the Ouija Muslims who are, you know, they're trying to actively re-educate so that they will, um, they will no longer be considered Muslim. Um, and, you know, so it has happened in different ways in different places, but it has happened again. And it's really, yeah, it's frightening to see how people just so quickly turn on other people who are perceived to be different and who can, as I say, be used as a scapegoat. So, for example, if we bring it back to the British example, when we've had terrorist attacks, you know, London Bridge, the Ariana Grande concert, the bombings on the tube in 2005, then these were carried out by people who said that they were Muslim, they were yeah. acting for Islam, but of course yeah. they were radicalized. That is not Islam. Islam <laughs> is not that kind of religion. You know, I'm not religious and I can tell you that. Um, but because they, they espouse these beliefs, then the media and the people who are who have these ideas anyway of kind of difference. And, and I think a lot of it's ignorance as well, ignorance about what these religions stand for and, and perhaps there's a segregation of communities. So they, they only have ideas that they can find in, you know, the, the, the press, you know, for example, the, the daily express and, and the, um, and uh, the sun, you know, that espouse some really, some really horrible things. Mm. Um, so I think that's, you know, when we hear about people who, you know, women who have their hijabs ripped off or, you know, or people who are just, who are blamed. <laughs> yeah because you're muslim then therefore you must be you know against the west and you yeah. must be wanting to bomb us i mean it's horrific and obviously as you said it's not just um islamophobia there's also anti-semitism the attacks that have increased on jewish people who you know maybe who wear um a kippah um so the kind of head covering for men yeah. uh but also you know again and it's and in the light of the 
current crisis, people who are Chinese or look, as you said, the sort of stereotype of looking Chinese or being from that part of the world, um, who have been verbally or physically assaulted. And it's just, I think a lot of it comes back to to education. You know, we, we might not be able to stop genocides in other countries ourselves. You know, it's not we're not saying that you should go out to these places and physically try and prevent it, but even just looking at your own little patch, your own community and how you can make a change there, how you can make a difference. And it's amazing how I've taught in a few different places around the country and the, the way that people think about the world from, you know, probably from their parents and their local community. And when you can bring it to them and say, well, hang on, what you've just said there is a bit of a stereotype. Let's break that down. Not, not, this is the important thing as well. Not just telling someone they're wrong. Because I think that's, that's a real problem, especially on social media now, that if someone doesn't agree with you, you just block them or you ignore them. And to some degree, you know, I think if, if someone is just being incredibly racist or or just insulting in, in other ways, then it's, you don't always have to engage with them. But you know, if a child in a classroom says to me, you know, oh, this picture is a group of Jewish people. And I say, how can you tell? Oh, because they're all really rich. You know, and it's 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 just saying, OK, well, let's break that down. Why? Where, where's this perception come from? What about this photograph that shows another Jewish family who are peasants, you know, in, in the middle of Poland in 1934, for example? Oh, yeah. um, so it's just it's just having um, that level of education and. And it's, yeah, it's hard to know where to, to go for people who are kind of outside school. And, and I, su- I suppose perceptions can change. And as I say, I think sometimes there needs to be a bringing together of different communities, people from different backgrounds and religions. And I think that's why I'm so, um, I admire what you do so much, you know, in terms of trying to bring people in your local community together, whether it's for Holocaust Memorial Day or other events, it's, yeah. it's to show that it's not just exclusive to one community I think you and I are are good examples of um you know of of kind of how holocaust history can um reach outside the Jewish community because you know obviously you wear hijab so people can kind of see that you're Muslim but for me people often say to me um you know if they ask what I do and I explain and they'll say the first question is oh are you Jewish and I say no (laughs) and then they're like, oh, okay, that's interesting. So why are you interested in this? And of course, like, of course, the Holocaust was a, a Jewish tragedy. Mm. And when I say that as well, I think, you know, people get quite upset about the word Holocaust being used just for Jews. Mm-hmm. And that's debated, you know, the, the, the word Holocaust is used just for Jews because they were the only group that the Nazis wanted to uh, murder every single man, woman and child, you know, from that group. Whereas, for example, with um, with the Roma and Sinti, uh, sort of as known as gypsies um, for homosexuals, you know, for pe- other people imprisoned in, in uh, camps and, and so on, then there wasn't the same drive. But of course, we have to recognize those groups. So when I use the term Holocaust kind of exclusively for, for Jews, it's it, the Jewish community, it's not kind of to be you know, exclusive in that sense and ignore everyone else um, just to kind of explain that. But um, but no, but, but yes, OK, because it happened to Jewish people, then people assume that you have to be Jewish to learn about it and to study it and to teach other people about it. Mm. And I just find that bizarre. I think it's a, a lesson in what humanity can sink to, yeah. what everyone can sink to. Yeah. And it hasn't, of course, as I say, things that have happened since haven't just been, uh, been against all sorts of different groups. And 
I think that's that's maybe the most important lesson of all. Yeah. You know, and I, I just I always I don't say this to people because you know I'm making small talk, but <laughs> for me it's kind of when you know if if someone says oh you know are you Jewish and they're surprised that I'm not it's kind of you know like if I wanted to study civil rights in America mm. then you know is there the assumption that I should be black to do that no because it's human history again um and it's it's so interesting I think that's that's one thing that it it, it can teach us as well is just the you know that at the end of the day whatever religion we believe in what culture we're from wherever mm -hmm. in the world we're from then uh, we're all human beings and we are all very capable of doing this to each other yeah that's that's very very true that's very very true and I think um like that's one of my favorite times by the way when I'm hosting a holocaust memorial day event and um I go up on stage to welcome everybody and then I hear whispers of going wait she's the host like what's going on <laughs> And then during the Q&A when people are kind of like, you know, asking, you know, questions, that question always pops up of, oh, so are you like, well, how are you connected to this? And it's kind of like a moment for us to, that's when you know, when you're an ambassador of an organization that teaches you that A, you're an ambassador of the message of, you know, teaching the Holocaust and explaining things, but you're also an ambassador of that organization and their message. So then, like, you can see people pull out their phone straight away looking up the Holocaust Educational Trust. And I'm like, yep, they've got so many things, you can just read it up there. So I think, like, sometimes more than people talking, like I said earlier, action needs to happen. And once upon a time, um, the Holocaust Educational Trust started with an idea, and now it's a you know an organization that has impacted people greatly as much as it has impacted us so moving forward the best way we can tackle the islamophobia the anti-semitism the all the horrors that's still going on in our society instead of getting better is if more and more people like you said get together from different labels or whatever society labels you to be and you just focus on the common you know, unity of being human beings and you unite to say, right, this is not okay. And we collectively want to do something about it. And sometimes information and education are the biggest tools you have against corrupt leaders. They will always exist. They will always have people who have power and overuse that power. And so like when, like right now with um, the situation with the, um, the Muslims in China, very few people know about it. Very few people. Like if I ask my closer circles, even the ones who are Muslim, they would be shocked when they hear about the extent of how serious this situation is. Why? Have you seen any news reports? Like a like a broadcasted news report? No. We had to kind of see it in snippets and then find out more about ourselves. And that's... yeah. yeah. I think, yeah, I think this relates again to the idea of complacency as well for, well, there's, there's two levels to it, really. So in terms of the media and the news, I remember when the uh, Rohingya, the, the Muslims in Myanmar were being persecuted, that was on the news quite a lot. And there mm. were reports being written and broadcast about it. Yeah. But again, you know, well, the, the, the problem, well, the, 
the fact really of news is that it it's new and so after a while that kind of event isn't news anymore and so something shifts to a different topic a different subject even if it's still continuing and we lose some of the contact with that and with the information because it's you know it's it's that's how the news works they'll they'll jump on other topics when as and when they happen yeah. but also part of it is is a complacency because you know it's there's a real idea I think that well if it's not happening here if it's not in my backyard then uh, it doesn't really affect me then why why should I really be bothered you know like Rwanda the genocide in Rwanda happened in 1994 so within our lifetime um, even if we we were very small um, but you know this there was a real cry for help from or towards the UN towards countries that um you know had been in Rwanda had um occupied Rwanda like Belgium for example and there was really no no response until it was too late so there is a sense i think of if it's happening thousands of miles away then it's not really that important and as i say it's not a case of we all have to go and you know go into china or go to the chinese embassy and and stand outside and protest in you know that's just not always possible especially at the moment mm. um but there are other there are other ways and as i say making a change in your your local community i think is is the best start and just using that planting that seed of education that then spreads to to other people and as people grow up they get an appreciation for you know other cultures and and the differences between us they can celebrate those differences as well oh my god that's yeah i think you start it very small and then more and more people become aware and you see change happening around you very very slowly because it doesn't happen overnight like you said and simply going to the embassy and protesting isn't really going to do anything i remember in lead up to brexit when there was like millions and millions and millions of people marching like every other day expressing their views very clearly and you actually like in certain people's mindset you think wow those numbers are huge awareness is everywhere so therefore this is going to have a positive impact or whatever kind of impact and then suddenly it didn't have an impact so protesting is very good it can have like you know but like you said when something is news and everybody's talking about it if you all protest one day and then you're on the headlines for one day then tomorrow it's something else becomes the next day news so yeah there has to be more than protesting and that's what people need to figure out and that's when change will start to happen but yeah i'm just realizing that we're passing the hour wow okay um <laughs> honestly because like we can like talk a lot about like you know the messed upness of the world that we live in but i kind of <laughs> but you know what on a slight positive note bringing what we just said about how people only focus on things that are closer to them and if it's happening you know miles away it's not the same when you look at covid 19 at the beginning when it was just being reported that oh this happened in china and this many people died people were like oh dear have you heard how awful and then it was more and more like oh this happened in italy it was so bad and then it starts to come to us and it went to different countries and then suddenly we all were affected Do you know what I mean? And when we all realized that, oh my God, we're in this together. This is affecting all of us. So whatever that's happening in a certain country or whatever might not necessarily be directly um, affecting you, but 
indirectly somehow it will have an effect on you because it's either bad for your mental health and you're watching something gruesome and you're just kind of accepting it or it will somehow have an you know impact on the world that we live in as is like our you know human history and then one day your kids and grandkids will look at you and say have you heard about that <laughs> you have to be the clueless person so yeah it's it's interesting but um i was gonna say to kind of like divert us away from that in terms of culture and understanding and things you've traveled quite a bit haven't you I have indeed. I have been very privileged to uh, to travel to quite a, a lot of places. Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. And where would you say is the most, where would you say is the place that you've been to that kind of left you with a lasting memory? Oh, well, I mean, I have traveled mainly in kind of the Western world, as it were. So I've been to Europe a lot. Obviously, I've visited Poland a lot, um, <laughs> Germany, Hungary and, and so on. I've done some interrails when I was an undergraduate student taking a train or taking trains around Europe and, and stopping off in different cities. I've been to America for conferences, Holocaust studies conferences in, uh, in different cities. But I think actually in terms of lasting memories and, and going on to the or connecting to the theme of culture, then I think the most recent trip that I took was probably uh, the most memorable in that respect. So just before lockdown or well, just before kind of all of this really came to a head in the UK I went on a two and a half week holiday to Southeast Asia um, so I started off in Malaysia and Kuala Lumpur my uh, my brother and his wife were actually out there teaching in the British International School so I visited them I then flew to Bangkok in Thailand and met with a travel group um, and we went around Cambodia we were meant to go into Vietnam but um, because of the situation because of the increase in cases in Europe, uh, we weren't allowed into the uh, into Vietnam past the border. So unfortunately, there was it was slightly affected, but that was just sort of a, a few days of my holiday that I lost. Yeah. But while I was there, the yeah the, the the cultural differences really made an impression on me. Um, so just in terms of things like uh, you know being in being in countries where um, Islam is is the dominant religion um and it's not you know it's not particularly strict like for example I went to uh, I went through Dubai airport I had to change in in Dubai um you know so, so I was very aware of, of lots of Muslim women who were very very um covered up and it wasn't so much in Malaysia I didn't feel like oh I was being you know revealing if I was wearing yeah. shorts or, or a vest top or anything like that yeah. um but just yeah the sort of that sort of cultural difference and the levels of respect that people give each other in those countries. So in Cambodia, um, we were taught about the way that people greet each other. So obviously, up until recently, we would shake hands with someone, whereas <laughs> they will, I can't remember the name of it, unfortunately, but they kind of put their hands together and they position their hands um, sort of in relation to their head, depending on uh, the level of respect that they are giving that person. So for example, if they were meeting a friend, you know, they might have their hands kind of just below their chin, um, and then they give a little bow with their head. If it's um, an elder or, you know, a professor at sort of university, for example, then they might have their hands higher up in front of their face and, and you know, bow their head that way. And so we, you know, and we took part in that when we met people and, and anyone, you know, from people who were serving us in restaurants to, you know, people in the hotel or tour guides or whoever it was, then um, 
definitely got to share in that. And I just thought that was really, really lovely, that kind of level of of, uh, of respect for each other and, and showing it outwardly. And just, I mean, just learning about different cultures. You know, I went to, um, I went to, on my birthday, in fact, while I was out there, uh, I went to the largest mosque in Malaysia, oh, uh, which wow. is really, really beautiful. Um, and this will, this will make you laugh, actually. I, I made a bit of a faux pas because um, <laughs> when, when when you visit, you um, they give you a, a sort of robe to wear. Um, so you are fully covered up. So it's got a hood. It's got long sleeves and goes down to your ankles. So, yep, that's, you know, that's fine. And you can walk around pretty much anywhere. Um, it's very it's a very, very big um, mosque yeah. and uh, lots of, sort of beautiful fountains and, and separate buildings and things. And uh, and yeah, I went into the, the main prayer room. Uh, not realizing that the door I'd gone through was only for people who were praying, oh, and so no. I found myself in a very long robe with a very lovely but very excited um, Malaysian lady, kind of saying like, "Oh no, not this bit!" I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Oh God, I have I've ruined everything. Um, so uh, yes, yeah, so I did. I went slightly off the beaten path with that one, but um, but now when I was talking to one of the guys, he was explaining kind of the features of the room and and what mosques have you know in terms of to to have in their prayer rooms and things and yeah, yeah I, I learned a lot from that trip and it, and it just really helped open my eyes to how different people can be and how different their cultures can be um in all sorts of parts of the world wow that's the, and do you think that kind of um shapes you as an educator like as in like the next time like you're with young people and things like that do you think that helps teachers kind of connect with like cultures not just with cultures but with their students on a beyond the textbook level yeah I think so um you know and I learn I don't do lots and lots of teaching in schools or um you know I do a few lessons from Auschwitz projects every year but you know you learn something from a lot of the students as well you know and whether they are you know Jewish or Muslim or Christian or whatever that be you might learn something from um about their religion and their beliefs and uh, or if they are from you know outside the UK or their family are then you get a lot of different perspectives on that but definitely having that uh you know having seen different cultures gives you a wider appreciation of the world I think of of how people live as well um and uh and yeah I think um there's, as I say, I'm no no expert in any of these things, but it's always useful to learn, and, and I'm very grateful to have that knowledge and those different experiences. Yeah, that's amazing. And you know what? For someone who has been through as much as you have been through on a personal level with um, your with um, the things that you've overcome with like mental health, and I don't think we ever overcome mental health. That's something that remains with us, and it's we just find a way to kind of um cope with it in the means here and now and then go forward as slowly as we can and with um your academic accomplishments and the incredible work that you're doing now are you do you ever get a moment where you say do you know what i'm actually proud of myself oh you've painted me in very flattering colors there (laughs) i uh i think you know well i think I mean, I can't speak for everyone who goes through mental health issues. As I say, there are people who are um, who are far worse off, who experience things very, very differently and find it very challenging. You know, sometimes just getting out of bed of a day is, is difficult. And I have had those days. But when I can, I just go with the idea of trying to seize every opportunity. You know, this is, again, coming back to my dad, it's something that he has really instilled in me. There's always 
in my family, there's always been a real a love of learning, a love of knowledge, of discovery. And just if you have the opportunity to do these things, then get out and do them. And, you know, I I have to have some self-awareness of this because because of my background, you know, because, you know, I'm I'm white, I'm middle class. So I think in some ways that does mean that some things I can access easier than others than people from ethnic minorities, for example. And I'm, I'm totally aware of that. And that's not to, to kind of um, be, you know, attack myself or anything like that and uh, or shame myself. It's just, you know, it's just a fact. And I am aware of that. But if you do have the opportunities and sometimes they can come from the strangest and most unexpected of places, it's definitely about um, grabbing them. But in terms of am I proud of myself? Uh yeah, you know, I've done I've done a lot. I, I guess you're right. I've overcome lots of things and I I could have turned out very differently because of those experiences. And I have my family and my friends to to thank for that in a big part, um, you know, ever grateful to them for helping me get through some of those times. Um, but I think I have been able to retain that sense of going out in the world and, and making it my own in a sense and doing the things that I want to do and seeing what I want to see and uh, I think I think maybe that's it maybe I'm proud of the fact that despite all those hardships that I am able to to carry on and, and try and give message of other pe- to other people about doing the same thing yeah and can I just quickly say something you know when I think of people who are privileged because of the fact that they happen to be you know a particular part of you know race or wealth or class or whatever like that I don't see people who do what you do in my head I don't see people who are questioned uh, why are you talking about the Holocaust I don't see people who speak passionately about you know um, the plight of people who are from different religions and different cultures someone who was walking into a mosque and accidentally walked into the prayer room because you know (laughs) he was so curious about discovering this culture someone who's you know, able to spend over an hour talking to a startup girls football team who are Muslim and who just need amazing stories in their podcast. Like there are sometimes like it's true people's, um, you know, class and whatever gives them a certain whatever in life, but it's what you do with the privileges given to you, what you do with the opportunities given to you. And people like you, the reason why you're on our star guest list is that Whatever opportunity is given to you, whatever privileges may have come to you, you use it to do something positive. You use it to change others. But at the same time, hello, if you get to travel a little bit, enjoy yourself. And if you get, you know, you know, have a little bit of joy, why not? That's okay. Because you're awesome most of the time doing something else for other people. It's okay to be privileged for yourself sometimes because we talked about mental health, kindness and for yourself. That's okay. I, 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 I support that kind of privilege. When it's, if you're doing good, you have a little bit of, you know, privilege for yourself. That's okay with me. Oh, thank you. You made me go all shy now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, I do my best, you know, and, um, and every, everyone's struggling in their own way, as I say. And sometimes it's not obvious how they are struggling, how they're finding things difficult. But I think, you know, mental health, again, in terms of kindness and, and this year's theme that that yeah being kind to each other checking in respecting boundaries respecting people's um you know personal private space or if they want you to to be a part of you know helping them cope with things then uh, then yeah just just recognizing what works for for people and um and being supportive and, and listening to them when they need it definitely
Excellent. And for us to kind of like start to close, because like we've had an amazing conversation, it's way past the hour. I was going to say, like, um, I asked you if you're proud of yourself. So I'm going to ask you a few moments and kind of let you have a moment to relive them and kind of see what you're most proud of in those situations. Firstly, your proudest moment in um, academically, something that you've done that or that you are very proud of yourself for. As I say, it can be challenging because of this, uh, the self-doubt that that it causes sometimes kind of having a, a very intense study, um, which you're doing by yourself. But I think probably I'm most proud of, um, I had a journal article published in 2016. So it was a conference paper that I gave when I was a, a master's student and then had it published um, into a journal article and, and actually into a, a book chapter as well. And that won um, an award for best essay prize for that journal. And it was up against, I think, um, you know, articles that had been written by established academics. So that was uh, that was something that I was, yeah, I was very proud of. That. Wow. And I'm proud of you for that as well. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> and um, what would you say is your proudest moment um, as a educator of the Holocaust, like a moment, a workshop that you taught or a young person who gave a feedback that you thought, wow, I've made an impact. Have you had one of those moments? I think, I mean, for in terms of being an educator or someone involved in Holocaust studies, then the first one, and, and I know you'll agree with me with this, is that, you know, if there is a survivor who thanks you for what you do, oh, for sharing yes. their stories, and, and, you know, I've had them say to me before, a couple of them, that when now when I'm gone, I know that at least my testimony is safe with people like you. Um, like me, not just me, but oh, people like me. Yeah. And that that really, yeah, that really sort of tugs at the heartstrings yeah. and, and keeps me doing what I'm doing. Um, in terms of an educator, I think whenever we, especially now that I'm doing lessons from Auschwitz, um, when we go to Birkenau at the end of the day and we have this, we have a, a sort of tour around and then we have the ceremony, and we light candles and we leave them on. There's a very large memorial at the end of uh, or towards the end of the camp. And when we leave, we, you know, we go through underneath the, the brick watchtower, very infamous brick watchtower. And where, whenever I see that, I've, I've now visited the museum, whether it's taking groups or for mm. academic purposes i've probably been there 20 or 25 times which is quite funny considering you know first time i went i said i'd never go again <laughs> um life life is strange that way but whenever i see that i get quite a, a visceral reaction a real kind of anger in me you know how what was created and, and what the nazis kind of tried to to achieve for them for themselves and so when we we've had the ceremony, it's very moving. You know, there's a rabbi who gives a speech who will say some prayers, um, which you know people are welcome to to join in if they want to or observe their own prayers or silence. And we light these candles and we're going going home to the UK. And I look at that gate. I always sort of look back and I just think, you did not win. Yeah, you know, the people who put those kind of places. Who, who set them up, who operated them, you know, these people with this utter hatred of, of Jewish people and others, that they didn't win and that we're still taking students there. You know, they 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 didn't want Auschwitz to last. It was going to, you know, fulfill its purpose and then be destroyed. And it's still there as a, like many other places, as a testament to the barbarity of people, of, of, of humans. And so when we take these children and students and and then they come back to the UK and they pass on what they've learned. Then it, for me, that's that's the that's the real satisfaction. That's the pride, actually, in the in the students um, 
bringing home those those lessons those ideas and, and sharing them with other people amazing and yeah we were once those students and we were once the students of incredible people who took us there and to see that legacy continue that's that's amazing and i hope it continues for many many more years and um that we learned from it instead of just going there and coming back and the society changes um what would you say that like you're close to your dad aren't you I'm very close to my dad, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, when we talk about mental health and we talk about people who, you know, need to talk and stuff, some people go through this alone, even at home, you know? And so you're quite lucky that you had a parent that you were, you know, close to. What would you say is your proudest moment between you both? Yeah, no, you're right. And I fully acknowledge how, again, I'm, I'm very, very grateful and very blessed to, to have the, the dad and the family that I have. Um, I would say the the moment or kind of the period, if you like, a few days that I had with my dad uh, a few years ago. It sounds a bit strange, but I for his 60th birthday, <laughs> I took him out to Krakow. He'd never been to, to Poland kind of to stay and, um, and he'd never been to the Auschwitz Museum. And there was an art exhibition of art made in Auschwitz uh, that was on in Krakow and I told him I'd seen it before I'd said how amazing it was and he said you know well maybe maybe we could go see it so we went to Krakow we saw the art exhibition I took him around the Auschwitz museum and then we spent some time there and, and flew home um, a couple of days afterwards and I think for, for both of us that's a real sort of defining moment of connection between the two of us so for him you know he still talks about it to, to his friends and people he meets and um he will kind of say you know for him it was amazing that his his daughter has kind of acquired this knowledge that could take him around this place and show him why it was so important to her and and for me yeah it was just it was just showing kind of showing again obviously showing my dad the site and how important it is not just to me but as as a historical place but also just showing him almost the you know that maybe the the fruits of labor if that's the right way of putting it you know when I first started getting really interested in holocaust studies my dad was kind of concerned because you know it's not exactly a, a light-hearted <laughs> topic and and someone who already has mental health issues he worried that it would impact on me yeah. um, which is understandable but then once he saw how passionate I was and how driven I was uh, in learning it then he you know he was all for it and has been really supportive all the way through and I think so to show him that that had not gone to waste that I'd taken it seriously and that I could actually have the the level of knowledge not an expert by any means but have the level of knowledge to tour him around the site myself um, without a guide I think that was what made that so special. Wow that's that's amazing oh my god make sure you tell him my friend Ephra said hi and you're an awesome dad. <laughs> <laughs> I will do, thank you. That's incredible. But um, what are gonna? So, what about um, in terms of right now, the news and everything's a bit gloomy. I, is there anything that has made you quite proud during the COVID? Or it could be a proud achievement that you've done, like as a coping mechanism. I think. Um, I mean, I will say, you know, with the news particularly, then it's definitely yeah, it's, it's pretty pretty horrifying um every day and, and you learn about the numbers again it's it's there's a risk of learning about numbers rather than people yeah. um which is you know we need to humanize the you know nearly what are we up to nearly thirty-seven thousand people that have died that we know of so far in the uk alone um 
So I think I, I, I restrict my intake of the news at the moment anyway. I'll, I'll check. My, my sort of default is BBC News. Sometimes Twitter might recommend, you know, a different article or, or whatever. Um, so I'll check it sort of once a day just to see what has changed and if anything has changed. I become increasingly more irate at this government. But at the moment, you know, there's nothing I can do about that. So I'm just kind of taking it, you know, as I say, just checking it once a day and, and not becoming too absorbed in it. In terms of coping mechanisms, I mean, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm proud of the fact that I'm still able to carry on writing and studying. And, you know, I haven't asked for an extension. Uh, I, I, my, my research is not particularly affected by this because it's pretty much all online and it's, you know, most of it's written up. So and just just getting it done and making it sure it's, it's done. And in very strange circumstances. So I'm kind of kind of pleased with that. But coping mechanism wise for me has been exercise and, and going for a walk and it sounds like a really small thing but I've made a daily walk just a non-negotiable element of the day so even if it's just half an hour I live opposite a park so I can kind of go there I can go around the park take half an hour of my day get moving get the steps up kind of thing um, and it's just being outside in the fresh air and you know seeing other people if if only from a distance then I think that's really important not to be sort of kind of kept in locked in at all times um so i think yeah i've I've been pleased that i've been able to to say to myself to allow myself that space to go out and and have that exercise amazing and that kind of comes full circle back to what we started with uh, mental health and being kind to yourself and being you know giving yourself time to you know get out there and just give you know, give yourself like a looking after your mind, not just your physical body as well. So both of them sometimes work together. So it's really, you know, it's amazing to do that. And so the last one, I suppose, and this might be kind of like a left field, <laughs> because we're a sports podcast and I was going to ask you, tell me a little bit about proud moments in sports. Is it something you played or something you watched or something you supported? Okay, so... I mean, as a confession, I guess I'm not much of a sports person either watching or doing. I mean, at school, I was always like not really picked for the team and didn't make much effort in PE. Yeah. But uh, for personal, from my personal perspective, I think um, when when I have been in the gym, um, I started going kind of about a year ago, obviously before, before the lockdown. Um, so I started learning about weightlifting. Um, nothing like massively heavy but you know just kind of getting into it and, and learning a bit about it and you know how to do it properly and all that sort of important things you know um so it personally it's it's when I'm in the gym and I go to the weight section and there's like all men in there and you're in there and they kind of, they're just looking at you I, I'm, I'm lucky you know there are women who I know who have said like oh god I can't because you know men can be not all men but yeah. some men can be can be a bit lecherous and they kind of look at them inappropriately yeah. I haven't had that I've just had people going oh okay this is interesting just a woman in this section like we're not used to this um so there's there's a there's a sort of sense of pride there there's a kind of yeah I can do this too yeah just because I'm a woman that's fine um and uh and in terms of sort of more generally if I do watch anything, it will be um, rugby internationals. And I, even though I don't sound like it, I was born in Wales, so oh. I still support Wales. Um, and half of my family uh, were Welsh. So definitely like watching Wales win the rugby, which they haven't done much recently. But when they do, it's great. That's what I'm really, really 
patriotic and really proud definitely wow do you know what I had very little knowledge of rugby just simply seeing few things here and there and then um and like I remember like just the might of the New Zealand rugby team every time I saw them and always been fascinated that's been my introduction to rugby but when our I think episode four guest Alima um Zainab sorry came on and she spoke about her journey in rugby as a woman and not just as a woman but as a woman wearing hijab I was in awe like do you know sometimes you need to hear a particular story that kind of makes you see that sport or that thing in a different light and for me I've sort of become interested in rugby all of a sudden so like yeah that's that's been interesting <laughs> it's been yeah but that's, yeah, that's fascinating, yeah. definitely. Yeah, so next time Wales are playing New Zealand, I'll be like, hey, I'm cheering for New Zealand. One of us should cheer for England, otherwise we're both getting kicked out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, England, England, Wales is always a lot of fun, uh, yeah. particularly particularly my dad, because my dad's actually an England fan. So uh, <laughs> if we can watch it together, then that, that gets a bit, a bit tense and we have to try not to rub it in each other's faces depending on who wins and to kind of um close um what moment throughout your life would you say that you didn't think you were going to do this but you actually did it because that's something that I want to teach our young listeners that Whatever seems hard, whether it's academic, whether it's personal, whether it's something that there is a way to overcome it. So have you gone through that? Oh, again, another another big question. Um, so I think, um, I mean, well, perhaps if I choose one person, one academic. So personally, I think something I thought I would never do is definitely like going to the gym and, and doing weights and training like and not just being kind of oh like an hour or half an hour on a treadmill and that's it like actually learning more about how to train different muscle groups and and using different weights different machines and like I would never have had that confidence about a year ago um so in me and saying that change in myself and seeing you know like I'm not I'm not getting ripped like let's just put that out there but um having definition in in my body that I never thought I'd see like that's really something I'm pleased with and proud of for, for myself and academically maybe sort of where I am right now actually like even though I haven't finished my PhD I am seven weeks off submitting and there have been so many times during this journey during this PhD where I have been very close to just saying I can't do this and just letting it go and so the fact that it's so close now is is terrifying <laughs> and also there is there is a sense of relief and there is a sense of accomplishment that I have been in very low places with it um but somehow you know found the strength found the resolve to carry on and now here we are we're nearly at the finish line and it's going to feel amazing and I'm going to take a week or two afterwards and I'm just going to do nothing and it's going to be great <laughs> I think it's going to be great because you're great and you're capable of greatness and I believe in you so you can do this definitely you can do this oh that's very kind thank you and you're great too <laughs> 
But yeah, um, thank you so, so much for joining me. This was a really, really amazing conversation. And like I said, there's so much that I could have still asked you, but then I was like, it's almost an hour and a half now. You've got to stop it for So, <laughs> um, like, yeah. So what I will do now is we're all going to pray for you. I'm going to tell all of our listeners to, if you are listening, whether you're a person of faith or none, um, just send positive energy and good vibes um, in Imogen's way for your dissertation and um, just in general good health as well because you know we want you to be healthy we want you to be amazing and we want you to continue like you know educating and making a difference because that's important oh well, thank you and yeah I wish wish everyone who is listening as well and yourself of course good health stay safe out there um it's a scary world. It's a very strange world at the moment, but we are going to get through this. Um, just think there's a little phrase that people use in terms of trying to cope with mental health issues and, and particular situations that feel unmanageable. And it's just this too shall pass. Yes. And just think this too shall pass. We'll get over this and things on the other side can be better. And they will Amazing. be Amazing. Finally, before I let you go, if your dad listens to this, what would you say to him? Oh wow! You're gonna make me well up if you're not careful. Um, I, I would, I would just say, you know, and not just to my dad, but to my family, just how amazing they've been, how supportive they've been. I couldn't have got this far without them, and I just, I love them very, very amazing. much. Amazing! Thank you so much, Imogen. Have a beautiful day. Thank you, Ifra. Enjoy the rest of your Thank evening. You.